You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Mark Polymoropoulos, who was a senior intelligence service officer with over 26 years of experience in the CIA. He served executive-level headquarters operational assignments overseeing clandestine operations in Europe, Eurasia, and the Near East, and served worldwide as an operations officer and manager with senior field assignments in the Near East and South Asia region, including war zones. He has recently retired, and instead of taking a much-deserved year-long vacation, he is here talking to us. So welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you, Vince, and I want to say uh, you pronounced my name uh, uh, correctly. There's, you know, as I, as I do these things now, um, that's not always the case. I recall uh, back, I think it was in 2006, I was in a field assignment, and uh, and I got a, a quick instant message from uh, President, President Bush's uh, PDB briefer, and they wanted my assessment on a situation. Um, and I and I gave it, and then I tried to uh, educate the briefer on how to pronounce my last name. And so several hours later, they came back and they kind of wrote me an instant message, and they said that President Bush uh, uh, was highly entertained um, as they were going over this in the Oval Office. So that, that's my claim to fame, I guess. Yeah, he had trouble pronouncing very simple <laughs> words. Right. I can imagine <laughs> your last name. He was just looked at it and just laughed and, and smiled. Um, let me ask you this question because I, I've talked to a lot of people who are. Uh, who spent about 10, 15 years at CIA and have gotten out for numerous reasons, mainly because they were burnt out and there's so many deployments. Um, and then I've spoken to a lot of former directors who, who are older than you by a good 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. You kind of run in this middle ground where you went into CIA in the mid-90s where it's not the Cold War, it's not the War on Terror yet, it's kind of this no-man's land in the 90s where, I mean, I talk about it a lot because that's when I was in the military, that's when I... Um, was also kind of in this no man's land of U.S. foreign policy when we didn't know what the hell we were doing. The Cold War had ended. What drew you to the CIA in the first place? Because not only were you drawn to CIA, but you were drawn to something that became very important a couple of years later, of course, the Near East stuff, looking at the Middle East. 
So what, what brought you to the agency in the first place? So, you know, I, I think I, I always had an interest in, in foreign affairs. I think there was um, kind of two, uh, you know, real moments I look back to. One is, and this, is, this sounds, you know, um, kind of corny, but my parents, when I was uh, just in uh, uh, either in middle school or, or almost in high school, uh, gave me the book Caravans by James Michener. Um, and it talks about a young foreign service officer who, uh, who served in Afghanistan in the 1950s. Um, and it's kind of very romantic, and it talked about the Afghan tribes, and um, and I kind of uh, uh, kind of fell in love with with wanting to do something like that. Ironically, I think it was 35 years later when I was in Afghanistan. Um, I think it was March of '02, and I'm sitting there, you know, cross-legged in southern Afghanistan, talking to an Afghan tribal elder, trying to I think we were trying to um, uh, garner his assistance against the Taliban in return for a well. But I, I actually thought back to that book, and uh, and you know how far um, uh, I had come. Um, and then the other piece was, you know, I, I just, I, I am of Greek descent. I was born in Greece. Um, I've kind of international background. I spent a lot of time, um, uh, you know, in the summers uh, in the Greek islands. And my father encouraged travel. My, he, uh, my father and myself and one of his friends, when I was 10 years old, we drove um, for about 2,000 miles in an old Volkswagen minibus through the deserts of Algeria. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just something that I always wanted to do, that sense of adventure. And I went off and I uh, received an undergraduate and graduate degree from Cornell. And then this is really the only job I ever have, which is quite interesting as you retire, realizing the, uh, you know, the, the skill set is, uh, is pretty unique. Well, let me, let me press you on this a little bit. Like, that, that sounds like you could just as easily have gone into the Foreign Service. Like, what, what drew you to intelligence versus the State Department? Sure. Uh, well, I think, <laughs> to be honest, and, and one of the one of the funny things is that when you join the agency and you set off on your tours as a unilateral case officer, you actually receive a diploma um, that says you would actually you're a member of the Foreign Service and that and, and you in effect pass the Foreign Service exam. I don't know if I could have. <laughs> so at the end of the day, um, I think it was just probably an easier path. But look, I mean, you know, everyone is kind of romanced by these spy novels, right. whether it was Jack Ryan or John le Carre, and I was always interested in intelligence. And uh, and so, you know, I applied when I was um, uh, at Cornell in grad school, and and uh, I, I certainly recall, um, interesting, interestingly enough, my first um, interview at Cornell at their career fair um, because there was an Office of Security um, uh, uh, member there with an earpiece because I think they were worried about protests on campus. Um, but but anyhow, you know, um, after kind of a quite a lengthy process in in uh, in kind of the clearing the security realm because of all because my background, all my overseas mm -hmm. uh, uh, travel, it's just you know, 26 years later, here I am, 27 now since uh, uh, I'm into uh, my first year of retirement. I mean, you got to talk to them. The poor guys had to drive up to Ithaca. <laughs> that's you right. Know, that's at least give them the time of day for for making that drive. So let me ask you this question. We've had former directors um, who get fat book deals uh, when they when they finally retire. So I understand why people would come become public about that. Mm -hmm. And then we have a lot of people who have gone on TV because they don't like the politics of the world. So they go and fire brand and, and whether they're former FBI or CIA. You're not really doing that. You're, you're kind of, you're not a former director. So I imagine you may have, we'll talk a little bit later about books, but there's no one dumping tens of thousands of dollars. I wish there were. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and you're not on MSNBC all the time or Fox News yelling at politics. So why did you decide to start making public speeches and write articles and be as public as you've been lately? Sure, I, that's a great question. And, you know, it's, it's funny because as I left, I kind of told myself I would not do this. 
um, you know, I'm, I'm in effect a, a baseball dad. You know, my son's a, in high school now, and he's he's going off to play college baseball. And I really had a, a plan to kind of buy an RV and and drive around the country watching him play baseball next year. That's an amazing. Oh, that would be amazing. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, but look, uh, I think uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, there are so many mis- misperceptions um, uh, about CIA, particularly with this administration. So you know, I think it's incumbent on a lot of the formers, whether you're a senior officer um, uh, like myself. Um, or a former director, but I think it's incumbent to to speak out and just help educate uh, the American people and put things in perspective. Um, you know, CIA has such a great story to tell. Uh, you know, it's the it's the men and women uh, of the agency that you know that I fell in love with and and I still miss uh, to this day. But also our our unique mission. So you know, there's so many narratives out there um, that are uh, that contain um, untruths, and so I felt it incumbent to to talk about things as I see fit and. You know, I, 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 you know, I must admit, I did go on MS, MSNBC once, which was uh, an interesting experience, but it was for, for a reason which I really felt strong in um, and had to do with uh, kind of what I thought was a lack of leadership amongst the national security um, uh, cabinet members um, with all the kind of partisan attacks mm-hmm. on those who are testifying in the impeachment hearings. Um, but at the end of the day, I think there's, you know, we have a, a good story to tell. We all, you know, respect the rules. You know, the Publications Review Board um, is actually very easy and, and and good to work with, and so obviously we don't talk about classified material, but we have First Amendment rights as well. Um, so I've, I've actually, you know, kind of enjoyed this next life, and I think I can do a lot of good, um, uh, and you know, and quite admittedly for the agency as well, um, in uh, in speaking out. You talked about you spent the vast majority of your career in operations, but you actually started as an analyst, That's right? Um, which is relatively rare to kind of make that jump. You spent a little time. This is the mid 1990s when you first joined CIA, and you're an analyst in counterterrorism. And I think that a lot of people, uh, even those in the know, kind of think that America's real focus on counterterrorism starts in 98, right? Which we'll kind of get to eventually, but this is prior to that. That's right. You know, and it was Al-Qaeda on the radar, and we know they were a little bit, right. you know, but at this point, did the CIA know what it was doing when it came, I mean, in, to counterterrorism, or was this kind of getting our feet wet? Sure, and and and, and so, you know, of course, as I, as I wrote my master's thesis on Algeria, um, my first jobs were nothing close to that. <laughs> That's just the tradition of the agency and the analytic side. But no, I did start as an analyst for two or three years. And, um, and you know, when, ironically, I worked on Afghanistan and, and one of the papers, and I certainly was not a co-author, I was kind of a minor player in this, but one of the papers that I did work on, I remember um, uh, probably in the 1993-94 timeframe was a, was a study on uh, a young man, a young jihadist named Osama bin Laden. Um, that that uh, both the kind of the Office of Near East analysis, but also um, the Counterterrorism Center was looking at. So it's certainly, Bin Laden and and, and CT was on our uh, uh, our radar screen. Um, you know, it, the 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 transition was actually interesting um, to uh, to the operations side. So I was lucky. I I was fortunate to go on some what we call TDYs, temporary duty assignments, to the region, and I came back and I and I kind of met the station and base personnel, and then I realized I wanted to become a case officer. But I came back, and my group chief at the time was a gentleman by the name of John Brennan. Mm. And I remember I went to him. This is after maybe I was an analyst for just two years. And I said, um, you know, sir, I, I think I'd, I, I'd want to switch career tracks. And he, he just looked at me and said, that's fine. And so and I look back at that now, and it was a little too easy. Right, yeah. You know, you, so you I, didn't maybe I wasn't that good an analyst. Around, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, but, but honestly, and I joked about with him years later when he was uh, traveling in the region and I was in a management position in the field. I, I reminded him of this. But I think he just wanted to see, you know, Young officers stay in the organization, not, right. not um, but 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 again, I think I, I made the the right choice. 
Well, you shift over to operations in 98, which is kind of really the kind of beginning with the two embassy bombings in, in Africa, and then of course with the coal in 2000 leading up to 9-11. I mean, was that a time when, I mean, that's quite a time for a change. I mean, I imagine CIA was kind of scrambling to, because they realized that there was a bit of a sea change involved with the ascension of at least Al-Qaeda into sure. the public. Not the full public, because no one really knew who they were outside of military and intelligence agencies, but at least I bet you guys did. Right, and so, but the, kind of the, the, it's interesting, and, and I think you're right in the, in the sense of kind of what what the uh, you know the Near East Division and, and Counterterrorism Center was looking at. But you have to remember when I switch over to the operations track, you kind of start from the beginning again. So all of a sudden, I'm going to go out um, uh, into the Middle East to, em to embassies where I served as kind of a, a lowly uh, third secretary, um, and then and you're not looking at the strategic picture as uh, as much. It's it's more of you know what, what are the kind of the intelligence targets in, in a particular country. Um, but certainly, uh, uh, in the stations where I served, you know, counterterrorism was uh, was was ramping up, and then, of course, you know, events of September 11th kind of changed everything. Well, let me ask you about the difference between being a case officer in counterterrorism versus the kind I'm of sure, old-fashioned, yeah. romanticized case officer in great power rivalries, where you're not recruiting a, a aerospace engineer that has knowledge of Soviet aircraft design. You're 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 kind of recruiting someone very different. No, that, that uh, that's that's 100% right, and of course, there's you know. So at the end of the day, when you go down to our, to, you know, to receive training as an operations officer, you know, it, it, there is a uniform training um, that one goes through on the kind of the the, uh, the recruitment cycle, spotting, assessing, developing, and uh, and recruiting. But counterterrorism targets are often quite different than if you're going after you know a, a Russian official or a Chinese official. Um, a lot of times, it has to do with the you know the time frame. Uh, I think in the CT world, we get a lot more walk-ins. Um, uh, and, uh, and sometimes the intelligence is a little different in nature. Maybe it's more tactical. Um, but it's still the same principles, you know, particularly on handling. And so, you know, the, the, you know what, what makes a great case officer is, is um, you know, it's the ability to uh, uh, elicit or, you know, uh, garner information from your, um, from your asset, your developmental target, but it's also running a surveillance detection route. So that's going to be the same thing, mm -hmm. um, whether you're in the, you know, in the back streets of Amman or in, uh, or in Kiev. Um, and so uh, uh, I think one of the things as, a, as an operations officer in the CT world, you do have probably what I'd call a little more near-term kind of gratification um, because at the end of the day, a lot of times we are collecting tactical intelligence. So, for example, if we are, um, have a penetration of al-Qaeda, um, we're going to want to know um, where the leadership uh, of that individual's group is going to be perhaps to take certain actions. Um, so so it's, a, it's a little bit different. You might get some more kind of near-term satisfaction um, as opposed to, you know, uh, recruiting a Russian or Chinese um, uh, official who really, it's, it's, you know, it might be the beginning of their careers and then it's kind of right. a long-term process before you get those golden nuggets. And you're looking for the 20-year economic forecast of the you know, Chinese or whatever. Right. Um, let me ask you particularly about motivations. Sure. I mean, you would think that way they would be similar, um, you know, these people, obviously, if you're looking at terrorists, they're ideologically driven already, so they kind of have that going for right. them. Um, money, I would think, matters mm -hmm. in, in very poor areas in the Middle East. Probably don't see coercion all that much. Um, but how much ego comes into play? I mean, in the broad sense, if you want to talk about right. the kind of motivation. But sure. No, it's, I mean, this is, this is the, 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 the kind of the one of the great kind of joys I had as an operations officer. You're also kind of a, a psychologist as well. Because um, at the end of the day, you're, you're assessing someone's motivations to, in effect, betray either their group or their country. Um, sometimes it's based on, uh, you know, could be just pure money. 
um, or perhaps they have sick relatives or a child that wants to go to, uh, to college in the States. Um, uh, other times it could be because maybe they hit a glass ceiling in a group. They can't, you know, maybe they're, uh, they're a minority um, uh, uh, in, in, a, in a certain country and, and they have no career prospects. Um, and then the other part is certainly ego as well, and that's a really good motivation to kind of um, uh, push on your on your uh, on your targets because at the end of the day, um, you can kind of translate that into well, if if they're not getting satisfaction at work, perhaps when they come on and they become uh, an asset in, of uh, of the CIA, they were certainly feel that way. You know, I, I, I'll tell you a, a quick story, and it's a it's a vignette, and and just uh, to be fair, you know, this is this is part of something that I've written in the past, so this is cleared by <laughs> by the PRB, but. Um, you know, I was I was handling an uh, uh, an asset in uh, uh, in the Middle East, and he was um, you know, he was he was a, a fantastic individual. He really believed in the ideals uh, of our country. He had been um, persecuted in the sense that he was a he was a minority, um, and during the what we call the the turnover meeting, when I take um, uh, over the handling of the asset, he kind of said something to me that always uh, kind of stood the test of time, and, and I think it's it's a it's a fundamental. Um, part of becoming a case officer, he said, "Look, Mark, um, you know you're gonna, you're, you know we're gonna meet every two weeks or maybe every month, um, uh, and uh, and I know you'll think of me at that time, and 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 what I'm doing, you know, is important for you, um, but you also go home to your family sometimes. You know, you'll watch a, uh, you know, a football game on Armed Forces Network, um, and go out to a nice restaurant. But he said, but let me tell you, I think of you every day because if you if you kind of mess up." Um, uh, whether it's our communication arrangements um, or, or surveillance detection routes, that, you know, if you mess up, I'm going to uh, face the ultimate sanction. Um, so for a young officer, I mean, it's really kind of, uh, you know, moving to me because, uh, 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 you know, what other job in the United States government do you have someone else's life in your hands? Um, and that comes, you know, right out the gate. You know, once you, right. once you, you know, finish operations officer training and you're off on your first uh, assignment, and very often the youngest officers are the cleanest, you know, so our foreign adversaries don't know uh, uh, who we are, so they're going to handle handle the most sensitive cases. But that level of responsibility is extraordinary, and I thought about that a lot. And uh, um, I think for you know for uh, uh, young officers now or people kind of thinking of getting into the uh, in, into the business, to me that was kind of a really um, uh, appealing and meaningful right um, uh, part of the whole equation. Well, you think that responsibility would be even heightened in the CT realm because. Right. In the great power realm, even though the Russians like executing people, there's a trial, there's a process, and most, like, I mean, if someone's caught spying in the United States, right, I mean, they may go to prison, but they at least will have some kind of due process behind it. I mean, there's a, a bullet to the back of the head in right. the CT world, right? Yep. Their lives are literally in your hands versus a spy trade or something later on that might happen if it, someone's caught in, you know, Russia or somewhere That's else. That's right, and, 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 you know, truth be told, I've, I've had assets who've been killed, um, and uh, and uh, that really kind of stays with you for a long time. So in 2003, you actually were promoted to middle management at, at CIA, which which I think is interesting because it's still relatively early on in the war on terror where CIA hasn't really completely codified how they're going to fight this thing. And so did you still find yourself that you had the chance to mold things the way that you wanted to kind of in that middle? Like you're, you're now management. You can look at young officers and kind of turn them into little mini U's and and try to create through the process how CIA would move forward. So that's, that's a great question because it, because that actually, and, and, you know, as I, as I, the end of my career, um, when I was deputy operations chief for the middle East and then, um, kind of the save job over, uh, uh, and then the acting chief of operations over Europe and Eurasia, um, 
I talked a, a lot with not only our young officers, but our young managers, and particularly those on their first management assignment. And that's a really hard transition to make because, you know, the, the job of a, of a case officer is to operate alone. Right. Um, and uh, and you, while you do have your, you know, your uh, kind of your mates in the, uh, in the bullpen help, helping perhaps in counter surveillance, ultimately it's a job where you're going out at night um, uh, on your own. When you, and and, it, and it, it is kind of about you. Um, when you switch and you make that transition uh, to your first management assignment, it's not about you anymore. And it's how you are, you know, uh, molding and developing um, the officers under you. So it's hard. You know, for example, you, you know, you're not one of the guys and gals anymore. Um, you know, uh, I always joked about as a manager when you're at, at an embassy and, you know, at the, at, and there's always kind of parties at the Marine House. These are legendary parties. Like managers leave at midnight. You know, it's time to go. Um, but at the end of the day, it is really important, and, and, and you start feeling later on in your career that, that you give back the most by teaching others right. um, kind of what you went through. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, that I love to tell uh, officers, and I was like this too, so everybody wants to get into management and get promoted and go and, and run stations and come back to headquarters and have big jobs, none of which is fun. The, the most fun is to be a, just a unilateral um, CI operations officer in the field somewhere. Um, uh, so, you know, what I would um, try to pass on is your career is a marathon. So what, what one should do is, as, as you kind of progress on, is, you know, do, a, do an assignment where it's, there's, a, there's a kind of big focus on counterterrorism. And then go do a, uh, an assignment where there's a focus on counterintelligence, like a Moscow, Delhi, um, uh, Beijing. Um, uh, uh, then you start having experience working with foreign liaison. Um, because it, and then and then at the end of the day, and this is what I always told folks, I didn't think I was the greatest of managers. I just know that when I was in a station or, or back at headquarters, anything that happens, I'd actually experienced it before. Right. Um, so you just know what to do. So you have kind of a nutty ambassador, or or God forbid, you know, uh, an agent uh, uh, is hurt or one of our officers is killed. So you just have these experiences that you can kind of um, uh, fall back on, and that's kind of what what I would try to instill into the. Uh, the young officers and their first management assignments is, is you know take your time to learn um, and get all these experiences because you're they're gonna you're gonna come back everything's gonna you know it's 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 a it's the second oldest profession yeah um, espionage show um, you're gonna kind of experience uh, uh, these things over and over well I think the trickiest thing in a meritocracy like CIA and it truly is a meritocracy is you're not promoted to management unless you're really good at what you did beforehand right. and so you're now in a management position knowing how good you are as a case officer. And kind of having to delegate That's right. and not do yourself. I mean, I've always found that the most difficult thing is to trust others to do what you know you might be better at them than, or right. at least, especially if they're young, right? You haven't quite learned yet. I mean, was that the big learning curve oh, absolutely. for you? So look, at, at, you know, so at, at the end of the day, um, you have to have trust in your personnel and, and you can't handle everything. So as you, and as you progressively get more senior, I mean, I had you know, 40 plus countries uh, under my, my last job. Um, there's no way I know what's going on in all these places. So you have not only your headquarters personnel, but you have to trust your station chiefs, trust your deputy station chiefs. Um, uh, and that's kind of, a, I think, a sign of, of good leadership. You know, micromanagement is not something that is, yeah. um, uh, is something that, uh, you know, that I would uh, uh, certainly suggest. First of all, you never go home. <laughs> but uh, but that, that doesn't develop, you know, good leaders. Um, as well, and, and you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot now, um, uh, and kind of we alluded to it before, is you know, what am I going to do? Kind of the next steps in my career. Well, I, I actually am going to start writing and talking a lot about leadership because I think, you know, you see kind of the U.S. military community. The Navy SEALs are famous for this. There's a lot of former SEALs who are out there talking about leadership and um, and kind of motivational speaking. It's it's not the motivational speaking side, but I think that 
that there's a lot to be learned from CIA officers and CIA managers on how they led because it's just a different world. You know, it's a, it's a kind of very murky, gray, opaque world where you make a lot of decisions based on kind of incomplete information. So I think there's a lot that we can pass on as well. Well, once SEALs get to the fifth week of BUDS, they get book deals as That's part right. of their training. That so, <laughs> well, you, you mentioned Deputy Chief of Station. You, you spent did a couple tours as that. And right. I think that, let me ask you about kind of the transition there. And it's not just leading people anymore. Sure. But you're not in a position where you have not only American IC and military liaison, but also foreign intelligence agency That's and right. foreign partner liaison. Right. What was the learning curve there? Is that something that, yes, you work with people as a case officer, but you're right. not in a management position, you're not in a direct liaison position as you would be as a deputy sure. chief of station? So look, the, the, our role with liaison is critical. Um, and, and, and you know it depends on the country, of course, where we are um, serving. But at the end of the day, some of our liaison relationships you know, have, have uh, proved amer- amazingly fruitful for the United States. We've you know, stopped terrorist attacks. We've uh, uh, um, caught you know, spies in our midst. Um, there's been a tremendous counterproliferation successes. So, so you know, the, the, the advantage of foreign liaison um, and really kind of learning how to, how to deal with them, um, it, that's a kind of a skill in and of uh, itself. I'll tell you, um, I, I know that's, that's just like running an, an asset. Um, you know, working with foreign liaison is something that I really enjoyed. Um, again, if, you know, you come to CIA not to work and live in the United States, you come to go out into the, um, into the world. And so these are, uh, you know, dealing with foreigners. And um, I thought our liaison partners were incredibly dedicated um, and, uh, and you know, really it was a force multiplier um, uh, for us. But sure, I mean, it's the same thing. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's not that you're manipulating another, um, you know, your liaison partner to, to do something for you, but that, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a, a process in which we're trying to convince them to do things which maybe they otherwise would not want to do. I think that's the definition of manipulation. But that's that's right. a, not that we're going to manipulate them, but we're going to manipulate them. You know. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. When you're a case officer on the ground, even when you're like lower middle management, you're somewhat siloed within CIA. Right. So let me ask you about the broader IC and about sure. especially special operations, yeah, because if you're doing counterterrorism, you're working very closely right. with people that probably in the 90s, that wasn't so common. Yeah. You know, where the CIA and the, the you know, the special operations community works. So cl- but now, I mean, not now, but 
during the time we're talking about, they're inseparable. And in so no, that's that's a tremendous question. What's interesting is that I think we're we're to the point where even my generation, you know, as I'm, uh, uh, you know, joined in '93. Um, uh, everyone who kind of went through um, 9/11 and the aftermath, and the aftermath, our relationship with the, with the special operations community is um, is, uh, you know, there's always kind of bumps along the road, but it's as ironclad as I think it it, it could ever be, and it's um, certainly it's the right thing to do, and we're now used to working um, with each other. Uh, you know, I have you know some really kind of personal examples. I was you know um, living up in the mountains with the Kurds uh, in December of 2002. Um, and then I was kind of seconded over to Naval Special Warfare uh, units for the infill into uh, into Baghdad. So I spent, um, uh, you know, a month plus um, uh, with these kind of, you know, true heroes. And, and one of the one of the great things about that time, and that was in 2003, is that going all the way forward to every one of my successive jobs until when I retired, I you know, these are these are people in the community that I knew. Um, so we trusted each other. And uh, and so whether it's you know Iraq or Afghanistan or the counterterrorism fight or Yemen, I mean I'm talking about all the places where I would run into these uh, individuals over the years, um, the same folks. Um, so it's a point where it really is kind of almost seamless now, and that's that's a that's a really good thing uh, uh, in the end because you know it, it's funny. So um, if it, it, your you know your life in an embassy is uh, is is uh, is interesting, and there's kind of different not not factions, but you know you have the the State Department officers. Um, uh, uh, and maybe the, I don't know the agriculture attaché, and then you have the defense attaché office, and really the CIA and the U.S. military have a lot in common. Um, so our work with, with I think uh, with uh, Special Operations Command and then, and then JSOC as well is uh, um, is something we're going to see into the future. What's what's really interesting about this is that we move, and I think this was a question that um, we, we were going to get to as well. So we're we're actually moving from the counterterrorism mm-hmm. environment, working with these units to what they love to call now near peer, um, which at the end of the day is kind of Russia China. And so I think there's a role for for the special operations community um, there as well, because at the end of the day, we're all looking at kind of the the threats to the United States going into the next, you know, 20, 30, 50 years. With little green men running around, there's certainly something they can do. Right. Well, there's a natural bond, I think, between CIA and the the JSOC, the special operations community, mainly. I mean, there's CIA paramilitary types, and there's the kind of missions that are run. I'm wondering, what about the relationship between CIA, as you saw it, and other intelligence agencies, DIA, NSA, NRO, those those types that traditionally haven't had the greatest relationship, even though it was one big happy community. Sure. It's not always one big happy community, particularly when you're talking about places where the CIA has been given prominence as kind of the lead agency right. that maybe does, <clears throat> rubs others the wrong way. Look, I think it's, in, it's all personality driven. So it's... Um, you know, clearly there are bureaucratic rivalries, and I think it's exacerbated more. I would, I would think at headquarters. Um, but in the field, where you kind of have this, you know, have this, the, you have the embassy team, and then you have the intelligence community team, and then as a station manager, um, you know, you're the DNI rep, so you're kind of in charge of it all. Um, it's it, it's dependent on the personality mm-hmm. of the station chief and the deputy station chief, and maybe the chief of operations to kind of have that, you know, kind of cohesive community uh, environment. Because at the end of the day, if I'm serving, let's say, um, as an example, uh, in Jordan. Um, uh, so you know what would I do as the as the DNI rep? Um, well, you you want to you want to go to the Jordanians and 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 leverage the Jordanians, but also to to how they can help us, but also how we can help them. So if I have an NSA rep there, um, or an NR or NRO rep or, or or anyone else, I mean this is all just going to be a kind of a force multiplier. 
um, but it's personality driven. Mm -hmm. So, and that's that's one thing that um, that I think I always prided myself on is that you know I got along well with our IC counterparts, and I think the, you know uh, uh, one one uh, institution you didn't mention was the FBI, mm -hmm. you know, the, the legal attaches overseas. You know, a tremendous partner um, for us. Uh, but again, it's all based on on personality. We talk about personality, and I think that people overlook the fact that these are agencies that are made up of people. And right. I know it's the simplest thing in the world, yeah. um, but there is kind of a mentality of kind of the scary building at Langley or the, you know, where it's an organization that is, well, you know, homogenous and all moves as one when it really is people. And I, I want to ask you about sure, 2009 sure. and I want to ask about Coast okay. because um, something I'm you've talked about before, but I'm sure isn't easy right. to talk about. Um, most people who are listening to this will know that there was an attack at Coast, the, the bombing, the one of the largest um, loss of life of CIA personnel, I think the largest since Vietnam. Um, most people will have heard maybe the name Jennifer Matthews because they saw Zero Dark Thirty or something right. to that effect. 99.9% .9 of the people listening will have absolutely no personal connection to right. it. So it's just names. It's just a sure. bad situation that happened with CIA. That's not the case for a lot of people. That's certainly not the case for you. Right. And I think that's a lesson that doesn't get sold enough. You know, you talked about the true heroes being the SEALs, and we certainly revere the military men and women who die in combat, and we know how many there are, and we, right. you know, the, the flag draped coffins coming into Dover and all these other things. But we don't necessarily have the same reverence, or at least the same attention paid to the men and women who die in combat, and there's no other word for right. it, working overseas for intelligence agencies. Sure. So, oh, I mean, I, you know, I think I certainly... Uh, uh, feel that way, and I know my colleagues do as well. Is you know when we have our the memorial ceremonies at our headquarters, it's a very solemn event, but it's something that um, is is attended by certainly all of us, but also a lot of the families as well. Um, you know, I, I think you know the the death of a colleague um, is uh, is you know certainly the, that's the the worst uh, event that one can ever uh, uh, imagine. You know, I certainly went through um, this after coast, and I'll. Uh, you know, it's 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 hard for me to talk about it. Um, I will say that uh, you know, standing up in front of a room of several hundred uh, officers in an overseas station um, and telling them that our colleague had been had been killed was the hardest thing uh, I ever had to do. Um, I actually don't even remember what I said. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, um, I think it's it's how we honor you know these heroes, and it is the 10-year anniversary uh, coming up. I I, I I recall very clearly. Um, the parents of one of uh, our officers telling me um, years ago, uh, she just said, Mark, you know, I just I don't want my son ever to be forgotten. Um, so it's really incumbent on us to to uh, to, to honor them. Um, it's it's uh, it's unfortunately it's you know, it's it's, it's certainly been more part of our job um, after 9-11 um, and, and dealing with this. I, I also recall talking to John Abizade, who at the time was the deputy commander of CENTCOM. This is years ago when um, I was telling him how much I had struggled personally. Um, with dealing with the death of an officer, and he said, uh, he said, Mark, you know, we we in the military deal with this on an industrial scale, um, and that's a pretty sobering uh, uh, reminder as well. It, it is, but I mean, I again, I push back against that, and it's and it's using in what Stalin would said, it's you know, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Right. You know, that's it's right. yeah, it's it becomes very very personal. Right. I mean, it's not like it's any less personal when it's your buddy on the battlefield, but it it everyone you know, it matters a whole lot for the families. It matters a whole lot. I mean, I remember someone saying, you know, Desert Storm was easy. We only lost 100 and, you know, whatever. And, like, it what really, about really those, sucked right? for the families of those people yeah. who were killed. And I think that 
maybe there's an advantage, you can talk about this, to the tactical realities of counterterrorism because we identified who was behind Coast. We, right. It wasn't just Bin Laden. We identified the people who planned it. We've, you know, and you could go get relatively quick payback right. for that. It doesn't make it better, but at least there is some kind of closure that maybe people don't get in a combat situation. Well, there's no question on that. And, and you know, without going too much into it, I, I was kind of intimately involved in a lot of the payback. Um, and, you know, we're not supposed to, uh, you know, talk about um, uh, these kind of uh, activities in terms of revenge. Um, but it did feel that it was, uh, uh, it was, it was certainly justified in the end. Um, I, I can give you a, a, a vignette, and it doesn't have to do with Coast, but it has to do with um, uh, kind of uh, another officer of ours who was, who was killed in Afghanistan um, uh, years ago. And when I, I was a base chief um, uh, uh, along the Pak-Afghan border running at one of our paramilitary bases, um, I think it was 2011 to 2012, and we were, you know, we had our kind of a list of high-value targets, um, and one of them um, was responsible for not only the death of, of, of our officer, but also kind of who's still plotting attacks. And I'll tell you, we, we you know, this was, you know, for me uh, as a base chief, really um, about at the, the farthest end of the tip of the spear. It, you know, my, my goal for that year was um, uh, to put this, uh, this uh, uh, terrorist uh, on the X. Um, and when we did so, using a combination of kind of recruiting assets, human, um, and then calling in an airstrike, um, it was an incredibly satisfying feeling. But most of all, and again, this is this has to go with, with I think, with what you're talking about in terms of kind of tactical success. We also um, called um, this officer's widow, who was back in the United States, and and I certainly was not authorized to do so, but I think myself and, and the team really wanted to, and, uh, and we told her what we had done, and, and she thanked us. And so, you know, a really tremendous moment, and, uh, you know, out of my entire year um, there. And we had a lot of other successes where we took a lot of uh, 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 kind of our CT targets off the battlefield, um, but this was by far the most kind of satisfying one because it, it was personal, and it um, not only, uh, uh, I think, helped uh, ease the pain of a widow, but also we're, we're protecting our officers from future attacks as right. well. That sounds as good as it gets in many cases. Right. So let me let me bring you from the personal to the opposite. Sure. You eventually moved to headquarters at a relatively high level, and eventually at a very high level. It, it has to be for 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 a former operations person. I mean, there's no such thing former for for, for former case officer on the ground. How difficult was it to be removed from the day to day? Because you really right. have to think big picture right. at headquarters. Even if you're involved in the operations side, you're still thinking, you know, not. This week or next week, you're thinking months, you're thinking years. You're you're, you're not just managing people; you're managing managers at that point. That's too. right. Yeah. No. So, uh, and again, it's a it is a uh, certainly it's a huge transition. I mean, you're going from um, you know a less operationally focused to more on personnel and resources and all the things that that are not as fun, but of course important because you know you, you kind of you know, I, I still would walk every day into headquarters. Um, you know, I always talk about I never had a bad day, and well, I did have several bad days in 26 years with with some tragedy, but you know, never had a dull day in 26 years. And, uh, uh, and even at headquarters, can I I'd walk in with kind of a kick to my step? Cause you know, you're doing things to empower, um, our officers in the field, um, whether that's fighting for resources or, uh, or money. But one of the interesting parts about headquarters and, and, and certainly the CIA, I think gained more prominence, um, even in the policy community over my evolution between, um, you know, uh, the, the mid nineties to, when I retired last year, you know, for example, my last job, um, you know, we were focused on kind of Russia all the time. Um, and you know, as I, as I took the, uh, 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 the last position I had, um, 
overseeing operations in Europe and Eurasia. You know, the intelligence community assessment was just published by the by the IC, which was kind of a definitive account of 17 intelligence uh, agencies um, that talked about Russian Russian interference in our elections. Um, and so, you know, what we kind of all sat back and thought about is that, well, this is pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, we're under attack. I mean, Russia attacked us. Right. A little different than 9-11, but, but not so much so, uh, uh, frankly. And so it was, then, it was then kind of garnering the resources and the, and, the, and the personnel, but really the will to have that same kind of 9-11 or, or post-9-11 mindset. Um, to then go take it to the Russians. And We've written that. You kind of looked at it as like a call to arms, right. like how you perceived the, the Russians kind of were perceived as al-Qaeda was on 9-12, right? Yep. Like they, they picked this fight. And, and that's was interesting that we're, and we talked about this already, the idea of the differences between CT and doing kind of the near-peer stuff. There, seemed, I mean, there must be an advantage of having former counterterrorism people now working uh, with the fight against right. Russia because this is not tanks rolling across the fold of gap. This is hybrid warfare. This is propaganda and different disinformation operations. This is special operations probably moving into the future. I mean, that's kind of what this is, you know, we've been practicing now for the past 18 right. years. So look, so let me just say, you know, and, and this, you know, I sound like an old, it's funny because I'm not an old cold warrior because I, I, I was a Middle Eastern hand. I was an Arabist. You know, I learned Arabic and I served in the Arab world. But, but you know, um, you know, so when I make the statement that I, I honestly believe that, you know, Russia is an outlaw regime right now, you know, they're killing distance abroad. Um, they're interfering in elections in Europe. Um, uh, I mean, you saw even today the announcement of, of their uh, uh, you know, suspension from the Olympics because of kind of persistent doping scandals. Um, so at the end of the day, we had to you know, rally our personnel now. Now the agency, I think, did something really smart at the senior levels of the uh, director of operations that's move um, a whole bunch of us who had kind of been veterans of the counterterrorism fights um, and specifically, you know, Near Eastern uh, uh, office of, uh, or, or Near East officers or some counterterrorism center officers, um, to, you know, to come and uh, 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 kind of join the, the Russia fight. And it's, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just it's kind of a different attitude. Um, it was kind of, uh, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, and I think a lot of actually Russia hands share this as well, is, you know, the, the way to deal with the Russians is certainly not appeasement. You have to, um, just like in the counterterrorism fight, you have to take it to your, your enemy. Mm -hmm. You have to do the same thing for the Russians. Now it's a little different. There's no lethal or, you know, kinetic um, uh, uh, options here. Um, but there still can be kind of an out-of-the-box mentality, kind of an aggressive mindset. You have to battle them kind of uh, across the globe. So what was, what was, I think, most satisfying to me in the last two years was being able to kind of help put those things into place. So, you know, of course, it's budget and resources and lots of meetings at headquarters. Um, but kind of big picture in, uh, in, in helping, uh, you know, shape the agency, CIA's um, counter-Russia fight. That was, that was really satisfying. And then, you know, one of, the, one of the great paradoxes of this administration is um, we were given the tools to do this. You know, there's the whole controversy over, over the president and his kind of somewhat, um, uh, uh, I guess, odd is the right word, odd affinity for, for Russian President uh, Putin. Um, but at the end of the day, CIA was really well positioned to take it to the Russians. And so... Um, I think that's something that I'm I'm really proud of at the you know at the, at the conclusion of my career. Well, it's interesting that I think that people might be surprised to hear that there are professionals that were still around at the National Security Council at the highest levels of of the IC, and even surprising ones. I mean, John Bolton. I've never been a huge fan of him going back to the Bush years, uh, but you've written very positively about right. him taking things seriously, McMaster and others. 
And, and that's where, you know, you don't see that from kind of the media perception of this. I'm not bashing the mainstream media because right. there's a lot of reasons, in my opinion, not to like John Bolton and they know my politics. But the, the, the but on the broader sense, he is looking out for putting politics aside. He's putting all that, you know, putting the, his boss's politics aside and saying, yeah, this is a threat. What, what do you need? Yeah, so so look, uh, you know, and and you're right. I've written on this. So both H.R. McMaster and John Bolton um, were both avid consumers of intelligence. I'm certain they, they both shared our, um, you know, uh, our need to uh, to counter uh, uh, the, the Russians. And I think you know when when someone comes into office, um, you know, you kind of have to put aside all of their previous you know cable news uh, uh, appearances. Um, John Bolton, I, I think a, a lot of us would share this view was, uh, you know, was very effective, um, uh, in the, uh, in the national security council as national security advisor. Um, really in, in, in particular, um, in terms of kind of his reliance on the intelligence community. And so that's, you know, that's of course the kind of, you know, $60,000 question all the time. Um, you know, how does the white house, uh, uh, you know, treat intelligence? Um, but I always would tell people, you know, don't focus on what the president says, focus on kind of the actions of the national security council. And they were, you know, tremendous partners. And, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think we did a lot against the Russians because of them. I mean, you've worked under four different government, four different right. government governments, not the British, four different presidents, right. um, two Democrats, two Republicans. Right. Um, certainly there were people, I mean, I think of the mid 1990s when there was political calls for, you know, dissolving CIA. Sure. And of course, under the Bush administration, a lot of pushback against the intelligence agencies. And then Obama was going to come in and change everything and actually up kind of up right. the tempo politics certainly isn't supposed to be part of this there isn't supposed to be any in this but it is part of the higher management job is negotiating this sure. a little bit um did you find it easier because of what you're talking about the fact that there were professionals at the nsc level there were always people who were brought in who you know were policy wonks versus political appointees yeah, no, there, there's uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it, so there's you know there's con the, the one of the narratives that you hear about or that that you know we are charged with is that somehow CIA is political or that politics comes into what we do. I mean, we're just frankly too busy. Um, I would say that all the time to folks. I, I have no idea what the political leanings were of any of my colleagues. I mean, certainly as I've gotten out now, and if you look at my Twitter feed, you'll you'll know. But that was never the case when I was uh, uh, when I was inside. Um, and and so you know you you serve different. Uh, administrations, but I think the 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 one point, and and I and I said this several weeks ago, and I actually I, I really like this that you know CIA officers are uh, we're always cranky <laughs> about an administration. Um, you know, there's a there's a there's a great story of back in the Clinton years when there was a small plane that crashed on the White House mm -hmm. lawn, um, and the joke amongst the community is that was at that time James Woolsey trying to give his PDB brief to uh, to President Clinton, who just never saw him, um, and Woolsey has actually joked about that yeah. uh, uh, afterwards. So. You know, and, and then I look at the Obama administration, and even when we were having some counterterrorism successes, you know, the NSC at the time, and I think had 400 plus uh, uh, officials there, and it was a, it was a kind of stultifying bureaucracy, and we were enormously frustrated. So, you know, so you know, my what I my kind of retort to all this is we're always cranky about right. any administration, which is good because at the end of the day we want to do our job, um, uh, and it's it's really done in a apolitical fashion. Let me ask you a big, you know, eighty thousand foot question. You might not be able to answer, sure. but. It's interesting. There's been a debate. Uh, this forever war, the last nineteen, you know, about to be nineteen years, uh, on the military side, about the, the kind of double-edged sword of having a worn-out military, worn-out equipment. Right. People have been fighting nonstop. Some now you've got kids of people serving together 
you know, people born after 9-11 who are now serving in the military. And on one hand, it's, it's, is the military drained? Is, is the military in a position where it's out of resources? But on the other hand, we have a battle-tested military that's been fighting a war for the last 19 years. And if you go sure. up against a near peer, the Chinese or the Russians who haven't, there is an advantage to that, right? We've tested the equipment. We have battle-tested soldiers. We have people that know what they're doing. On the intel side, is there something similar where obviously you have people who have burnt out, you have people who have mm -hmm. left way before they probably should have just because they couldn't handle the analysts being forward deployed. They thought they would be in a cushy air-conditioned room back at Langley. But we've got a lot of practice sure. in the last 18 years about how to do intelligence, not only at the strategic level, but at the tactical level also. Yeah, everyone's worn out, but does that, does that put us in a advantage? Well, look. So, so I think there's there's d different ways you can you can look at this. It's actually it's a it's a great question. Let me just start with you know certainly from our for our um, special activities division personnel, um, kind of the, their ops tempo has been extraordinary. Um, so I think that 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 is something to to always kind of pay attention to is is how are our um, you know uh, special operations personnel within CIA um, handling the repeated uh, uh, deployments. And I think there's you know there's lots of different answers to this. Certainly on a much smaller scale, but there's there's ways to kind of hire more. Um, and and, frank, and frankly, though, kind of the war zone um, uh, uh, service is going down with kind of drawdowns in in, in, uh, in various uh, arenas. But but I think fundamentally, it's a it's a really important question because I always my contention was, and I spent nearly three years um, you know away from my family. My contention is a that the the war zone or the conflict zone service was the greatest moments of my career because of just the sense of of satisfaction. Uh, uh, one receives. I mean, you really stand taller. You walk taller in the hallways when you get back, and you feel great about, you know, what you've done. Um, but it also teaches you things that are different as well. So it, it, again, it's it, as, as I think it was a previous question. Um, you know, so so being a case officer in a war zone is different than being a case officer um, in uh, in Paris or Berlin or or or, or, uh, or Moscow. And it's part of these experiences that, when you're done with all of these things, make you a, really a better. Um, well-rounded officer. And I, I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, uh, uh, it's something that at least when I left, you know, it was, it was, it, it was not, if not encouraged, it was demanded of our officers, especially on the operations side, you're going to have to do a conflict zone um, assignment and not just to fill, um, uh, you know, a, a, a position, but because it's really going to make you a better officer. Um, and then just kind of, again, once again, on the, on the, on the personal side, um, uh, it's something I'm just, you know, myself, I'm really proud of. And I know my family is uh, uh, as well. I mean, it, it, it challenges you. It tests you. I mean, it depends where you're going. Um, but certainly there's the idea of, of uh, being gone for a year. But then there's the physical danger. But then there's also kind of the psychological part of it, too. I mean, you know, uh, uh, I still joke with, with some of my friends. Uh, this is uh, um, back from when we uh, went into Baghdad, I think. Um, you know, we were joking. We had, a, we had a contest. I don't think we took a shower for six weeks. Um, again, it's 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 a silly vignette, but it's something that you know you just look back on later, right. and you're like, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, these are things you kind of you fought through, and and uh, and and you learn a lot about yourself. God bless baby wipes. <laughs> That's right. So you 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 inferred to writing, um, and talked about leadership. Sure. Is that's what is that is that what is next for you? Is that kind of what you're focusing on now? It, it is, and so so you know, I've I've had some pieces published in various mediums, just in terms of kind of current events and what my comments, but. Um, there's there's two things. One is I'm I'm kind of doing some speeches just about I, I call it kind of life as an intelligence officer from the flip phone to the age of Twitter. So it kind of encompasses the whole um, the 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 uh, my my career and 
it's 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 kind of explaining to folks what you know an operations officer what CI does, but particularly on the operations side, and then kind of uh, uh, lots of vignettes, which were really important to me. So that's just kind of explaining to the American people um, uh, what my life was like, um, in the hopes that I'll do some good in kind of understanding CIA. And then on the leadership side, again, as I as I mentioned before, I, I'm starting to write um, and and do some some speaking on um, lessons, you know, principles that I learned. Um, from my time, and, and again, this is not from, you know, it's, the agency is kind of a different animal. In, in the military, I think, you know, you go to leadership schools. We don't do right. that as much or as well. Um, I certainly have never read any books on leadership, uh, you know, d- didn't get my MBA from, from Harvard. Um, but uh, uh, I think I did learn a lot uh, over my 26 years um, that can really kind of uh, help others. And I'll, and I'll tell you, and it's, it's funny, I'll talk to anybody. I mean, I, I uh, uh, my, uh, uh, in our home, my hometown of Vienna, Virginia, um, about um, six weeks ago, I went and I talked to the high school football team before a big game, and I gave them my, you know, my shtick, um, and they loved it. And I, you know, I would walk around town later on, and I'd run into some of the players, and it really meant something to them. So I, you know, I think there's there's some things I can uh, I, I can certainly pass on because ours is a life of kind of overcoming adversity. Um, it's uh, 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 it's uh, there's there's kind of a lot of principles, you know. It, it, leader, one one leadership principle I love talking about, I call it winning an Oscar. Um, and that's at the end of the day, you as a leader are always on stage, um, nonstop. I'll never forget a, uh, a time where I was again, I was a base chief in Afghanistan, and out of the entire year I was there, it was the one day where, for you know, I think we had been on patrol in Taliban area, and I hadn't showered or eaten for for 24 hours, and I went in our mess hall and I ate by myself. And the entire base fell apart that night. You know, these are these are veterans of Tora Bora and mm-hmm. Black Hawk Down. You know, former SEALs and, and um, special forces officers, and they were all like, "Oh my God, what's wrong with the boss?" I just wanted to be by myself, and that but that that principle that you're always on stage is really important. And so, you know, whether I'm talking to a high school football team, talking to the quarterback, saying, "Hey, you know, you're the leader. You, you can't have your head down. Right? You can't have um, a bad day. Can't I mean, have a bad day. Yeah. Um, every one of us wakes up every yep. so often, like, oh, I don't want to do it. But you just you have to suck it up. Right." Right, uh, uh, you do. So I think there's a lot I can pack, and I'm, I'm, I'm having, I'm having fun doing this too. So uh, uh, it's definitely it's a different world because after 26 years in the shadows, it's very strange um, to be out talking to uh, 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 to it's kind of the folks. And I mean, I was I was up in uh, Pennsylvania um, last week. There was a um, a one of their World Affairs councils, and then a, a, a the, the local TV station um, asked me to come up and just talk about kind of impeachment and some of the things I I, I was seeing. Um, in terms of the national security officials, this is talking to middle middle America, and I loved it. Um, you know, so you know, we're I, I don't I don't I also don't want to be stuck just in kind of the the cocoons right. of Washington, New York, or, or or California. You know, just going out and talking to regular folks. One of my favorite things I always said when I was a younger officer, and I said I was from the State Department, and I was off in Ohio somewhere, and someone would ask me, "Can you help me with my driver's license?" Um, so it's no, it's a different State Department. But you know, there's a lot out there that we can. Uh, kind of put forward to, uh, to the American people. You'll experience this. The most fun I ever had was doing what they called a radio palooza, right. or when I, after a, a, my book came out, um, a Tuesday morning from like 6 a.m. to like 3 in the afternoon straight, I did like 19 different radio interviews, one after the other. Right. And it was like, I went from NPR in South Dakota to like rock jock stuff in Kansas right. City, and it was just <laughs> like uh, the, the world, the country tour of all these different personalities, and you talk to all these different people, it just gets you out of the kind of the DC bubble where, right. you know, and you kind of have to change your personality a little bit. But if you're talking about like, you know, this is key and see in the morning, you know, you're like, you have to be upbeat. And if you're talking, 
this is smooth jazz on NPR <laughs> South right. Dakota. You're like, very different way of looking at things. So but when your book does finally come out, well, I'm sure the museum will want you back here oh, sure. to do another spy cast and talk to you again. Mark, I really appreciate your time. We really, you've been a fantastic guest. These are, it's wonderful to get these kind of really personal stories because it's too easy for us to forget that there are people behind this. Um, too easy to get stuck on the history where people are long gone or get stuck on like the bureaucracy and the big picture without thinking about the individual. So um, appreciate your time and uh, we're truly gonna have you back for sure. Thank you very much. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you wanna to donate to the museum or if you're local and wanna volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.